Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to take a little moment out of the show to tell you about a new podcast that I have found called Token Talks, which you can find uh, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts. On this show, we talk a lot about our content consumption habits, and I generally ask uh, the guests, you know, what kind of podcasts you listen to? What are your podcast consumption habits like? So I found this podcast. wanted to let you guys know about it. Uh, the tone is a little bit different than what we normally do on the show, but I think the listeners that want to go deeper on certain aspects of the future of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in general will find the show educational and engrossing. And yeah, just wanted to take a moment out of the show. And of course, uh, you know, thank you to Token Talks for, you know, reaching out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Takecast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock, as always. In this episode of The Takecast, we are joined by Matt Manacharchin from Sports Info Solutions. He is formerly a scout of the New Orleans Saints and the Cleveland Browns, and I wanted to bring him on the show during NFL draft season to talk about what the NFL draft is like being inside of a team. Matt is also going to the scouting combine in Indianapolis this weekend, and he reveals a little bit about what it's like to be there, what teams are hoping to gain from the scouting combine, you know, how they view the performances, the medical reports, and uh, all of that information. If you like the show, a rating and review on iTunes does go a long way, very helpful. If you want bonus episodes of the show, you want more content, we always have more episodes of the show available on the Patreon, patreon.com slash TakeCast, as well as a sub-only Discord, so if you like the show, want to talk to other people who like the show, uh, and you know are involved in the DFS sports betting world, you can always head there. Uh, of course, the show this week is brought to you by rotoexperts.com and Daily Roto. We have launched our NFL 365 package on rotoexperts.com. We have best ball tools already live on the site for your best ball drafts taking place in February, March, and April. We have daily scouting reports on players who are coming into the NFL draft, as well as uh, our Daily Roto powered projections and rankings. Think you guys will like all of that. You can save 10% on your $39.99 package at rotoexperts.com for the NFL 365 package by using the promo code MATTEK, M A T T E K. All right, everyone, would like to welcome back Matt Manacharshan to the show. He uh, he was a guest on one of the most popular episodes of the TakeCast thus far, episode 42. Uh, if you end up liking this episode and didn't hear the first one with Matt, I would recommend going back and listening to that. But uh, Matt, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for all of the people again? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on again. I had a blast last time and I'm excited to be back. Um, I think you run an, an awesome program here, so it's great to, to be on with you. My background, I was an NFL scout for five years. I was with the Saints for four, the Browns for one, 
Um, after that, I went and learned a lot about sports analytics and how they apply to other sports and eventually ended up at Sports Info Solutions as they were expanding from baseball to football to help head up their football department. I kind of think of myself as a translator between football people and computer nerds. Um, I'm somewhere in between. I kind of am bilingual in both languages. And um, we're just trying to move the whole thing forward. We have a book that just came out, the SIS Football Rookie Handbook. And we're trying to help teams win games, create a competitive advantage. And we try to exist in the public sphere also to try to just keep moving the conversation forward. And so we are going to get to the Sports Info Solutions Rookie Handbook towards the end of the show. But I wanted to start here since you have experience on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, right now, you know, in, in February, in March, before the draft, what is it like in an NFL front office during draft season in the combine? Is everyone watching tape, going through spreadsheets? Uh, kind of just what is the general environment like inside of front offices before the draft? So it's really interesting because starting really um, in July, August, as everybody's geared up for the NFL season, there's a handful of guys, somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen guys that are going to be on the road. And I should say women also these days um, that are going to be on the road, that are going to be watching almost exclusively college players and really being experts on all this stuff. And then when you get to this time of year, all of a sudden, when we get to January, February, depending on when you leave the playoffs, then all of the pro scouts, the GM is more focused, the head coach and the rest of the coaching staff, they're all coming over and there are a lot more opinions getting involved. You know, the trainers were worried about kind of trying to keep the guys healthy. They don't have as many guys to worry about in February. So um, everybody is getting involved with, with the evaluations. Um, to some extent, everybody watches film, but mostly the jobs are, are pretty well divided. So you'll have your scouts and your coaches that'll be mostly film-based. You'll have your coordinators and, and uh, maybe some of the executives that'll be a little bit more spreadsheet-based um, and kind of everything in between. I remember as a scouting assistant with the Saints every year switching over from being very pro-focused to being very college-focused. And it's fast and furious. You start going in January with the All-Star Games by February, you're having all of your meetings and you're trying to arrange, you know, this first picture of your board, the kind of perfect board that you have before everybody gets involved and starts to ruin it. Then you get the uh, combine, of course, which we're right up against now. Uh, we'll be fly I'll be flying out there tomorrow, actually. Um, and then after that, you go straight into pro days and you're having all of your final meetings involving all the different opinions, all the different stakeholders, getting the medical stuff back from the combine. And people sometimes forget that's the most important aspect of the combine from a team perspective. Um, so all of these things are going on and it's fast and furious, but, uh, but also hopefully you've got a process designed and laid out that's going to allow you to take it all in stride. How much are the NFL teams weighing the exhibition games? So, you know, the, the Shrine Bowl, the Senior Bowl, how, how much are pro teams taking into account not only what happens in those games, but during the practices? Because pretty much every year we will get a ton of reports about, you know, a Andy Isabella is a good example this year. Guy had an amazing Senior Bowl. I don't even know what, you know, draft grade teams had him on before then, but I, I can pretty much guarantee off the strength of that game he'll be drafted. So in your experience, how much are teams paying attention to, uh, you know, those exhibition games? So there are two aspects to what you just asked, and they're both interesting. Number one is the practices during those all-star game weeks are probably more important than the game. Right. All for the senior bowl, for example, all the scouts, they're traveling out there during the week. Everybody's traveling back home by Thursday, Friday. Nobody's really there for the game. 
that said, obviously, what happens on the film in the game, everybody's going to get that, and everybody's going to take a good hard look at that. Those are, those are live reps, so you've got to take that into account. However, all of those individual drills, that's the real juicy stuff that you're getting from these one-on-ones at practices. The other aspect, how much do teams look at this? If you're talking about um, a guy that's played SEC competition and he's been a three-year starter and you know exactly what you're getting with this guy, you're probably not looking at it too much. You're probably not moving up and down the boards that much at that point. Somebody like an Andy Isabella is a great example. Smaller school guy. You don't usually see him against great quality of competition. You might have kind of some opinions on him that are all over the place. You might have some people saying, if we project this guy to a different quality of competition, he's going to be able to do it. You might have some people saying, uh, nice, nice small school player, but I don't think he's going to be able to do it. Well, here you go. You see the apples to apples comparison against some of the top corners. Yeah. And my, my guess would be that a lot of the opinions get that get generated are about the quarterbacks, because that's mostly what we, the public see is we see reports about the quarterbacks. You know, we get reports about the quarterback's attitude, about their throwing accuracy, how they did in the drills. And like, I, I think a great example for this year is Gardner Minshew had a horrible senior bowl guy looks lost. I think he completed one pass, but like what he has on film is really impressive. Like I think Gardner Minshew's film is, is pretty good. Uh, do you, do you have any specific, uh, I guess, anecdotes about uh, scouts getting lower on the quarterbacks from their week at, uh, at the senior bowl? I think there's definitely, I think like publicly some evaluation that goes on of the quarterbacks because it's easy to say, this guy looks good in practice. This guy looks bad in practice, but we really need to take a step back when we talk about, being able to watch somebody practice once and then have some sort of judgment about who they're going to be as an NFL player. It's kind of, I would never go to a school and be like, Oh, you know what? I was at Syracuse the other day and this defensive lineman, you should have seen him in one-on-ones. He had an awesome day of one-on-ones. I haven't really seen him do anything else, but just based on that, I think he's a first round player. It's kind of ridiculous to, to try to make those kind of, now you're, you're looking, everybody wants the hot takes, everybody wants, and the quarterback is where it's at the whole time. And yes, you can tell something about, does a quarterback look the part? How does the ball come out of his hand? Those sorts of things that, that maybe can be harder to tell just on film sometimes. But if Gardner Minshew was lost because he didn't know what the coaching staff was trying to install and he's trying to work on taking drops out of under center, which he's never done before, and he's dealing with the adjustment process to that, we've got to take all of that with a grain of salt, I think. Yeah. So the NFL Combine has sort of become like the NFL's version of uh, the NBA's Las Vegas Summer League. It's it's like a whole thing now. You have fantasy football people going. Uh, you know, all the teams have representatives there. You have people, you know, in your sector, which is like the analytics, the information sector there. You guys have meetings with teams. So just kind of what is the experience like at being at the Combine? What's everyone talking about? What is, you know, our our you know, all sorts of people rubbing elbows. I, I kind of want a sense of what it's like to be in Indianapolis during the combine. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, summer league or baseball's winter meetings. This is the NFL's convention. Um, they have yeah. the owners meetings quarterly and they do all that, but this is the NFL's convention. And it's this, it's this weird thing because I, I've been going to combines about 10 years now, something like that. And it's in Indianapolis, which is a wonderful little city. Everything's in walking distance in downtown. And it makes it perfect for this sort of everybody. It's a convention town. Everybody can come in, take over kind of the downtown area and be in a nice small radius so that you guys can just constantly be meeting, milling about. I tell people all the time, the combine happens as much in the JW lobby as it does in the actual Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, just with all the different interactions and going on and, and meetings that people are having there. 
Um, at the end of the day, everything that happens in Lucas Oil, we can look at the results later. It's it's not very interesting to watch somebody run a yeah. three cone drill, <laughs> although you'll hear scouts say that they you know they learn they learn things from that sort of stuff and that's all well and good. Whatever you know, whatever you want to do, I'd rather just have the results at the end of the week and um, incorporate those things along with the film because the film's where it's at. Um, but I say it's a funny place because I love indie. It's a wonderful, it's kind of like the whole league is there for a week and you're just seeing it, people you might've worked with before. Um, like you said, people that are working for vendors or people that, you know, if you're with a vendor now like me and you used to be in the league, you're reconnecting with old people. So uh, it's wonderful as far as all that stuff goes, um, but it's freezing. Um, it is about yeah. like, the coldest week in the year in, in Indianapolis. So um, they have like a tunnel system built where you can actually get around most of Indianapolis without going outside which is really nice and a lot of people will take advantage of. Um, but yeah, it's definitely this sort of um, everybody's mingling, meeting with each other, getting stuff done. Um, you know, people will start having conversations about maybe uh, trades that are percolating or different free agents. You know, the new league year is going to be starting soon and there's the official tampering window, but now we got to start with the unofficial tampering window. Um, so all that stuff is happening in Indy. So as it relates to this draft, and I guess kind of also historically, I guess this would be the time where teams start thinking about trading down or trading up. Uh, I think this is sort of viewed as a weaker quarterback class. Do you think that there are any of the teams kind of in the top 10 who are actively looking to trade down? I think a, a great example of a team that would be wanting to trade down would be Arizona. They drafted a quarterback in the first round last year. They have the first overall pick. And I mean, I guess if you have some good Kyler Murray speculation this would be the time to uh to let that go I have the same speculation as everybody else we all we all heard what Kingsbury said about him and it wouldn't shock me because when you watch the quarterback I agree with you weak quarterback class overall there are the two guys at the top Haskins and Murray that I think separate themselves from everybody else I don't think either of them is sure things but I think there's a lot to be excited about with each of them in different ways you you don't think Kyler is a sure thing (laughs) <laughs> I will say crazier things have happened uh, than, than Kyler Murray kind of elevating up the board because he does have some special skills. And I think anybody that's watched him play um, or if you, if you just look at his stat line on the guy, you can, you can see he's got some special traits. Um, but yes, it is definitely a weaker class. And so that figures that more teams will want to trade down on paper. But the way I really think about trade ups and trade downs is smart teams want to trade down. And not just want to trade down, but do trade down. They actually prioritize it and they create a system for themselves where they can actually get down the draft. Um, in, in a year where there's a strong quarterback that kind of somebody wants to get up to number one, sure, you can, you can get a whole load from somebody else and, you know, an RG3 type of trade. But in a year like this, it's a little bit more difficult. But I still think that um, it might be harder to trade down because nobody's trying to come up as much. But I still think the teams that trade down more often than not are continuing to reap more benefits than the teams that trade up. Uh, Nobody's questioning anything that the Saints scouting department has done over the past few years. They've done a phenomenal job, but they traded up to get Marcus Davenport. They're not going to be picking in the first round this year. You kind of have to think of that like two first round picks in one. Um, We did the same thing with Mark Ingram when I was there. Mark Ingram, great career there, but we gave up a first round and a second round pick to draft him at, at number, I think 28 overall. So I think, when you trade up, you better make sure that you're going to hit on that guy. And, and hey, the Saints hit on Alvin Kamara trading up. So um, you can kind of talk yourself in circles. But I think if you're doing a, a good process, you're always going to be looking to trade down. 
Well, this is, uh, this is a, the big thing that I wanted to talk about on this podcast because I think you have insight from, again, both sides of the aisle. But I want to know your opinion on the skill of drafting because in the fantasy football community, you know, the, the online, we know better than the GMs community. Everyone just likes to say, it seems like there's no skill. Uh, player evaluation is just really hard in the NFL and you're, you're best getting as many bites at the apple as possible. And I, I, I buy that to the extent that I think player evaluation is hard, but there has to be some market inefficiencies that make it possible to make better selections than other teams. So I kind of wanted your opinion on what, what the skill of drafting is and how different that skill might be between front offices. This is a thing that we get into with analytics that is, it always comes up and I really hate it. We can't prove that some teams have drafted better or worse than other teams over the course of long time right. based on the limitations in our data and the fact that uh, guys, you know, don't always get equal number of opportunities and it's very hard to compare these things. Um, just it, the nature of the whole thing. So, but we have to be able to separate not being able to prove that one team has drafted better or worse than another team with, it's, it's something that's impossible and it's all luck and there's nothing that goes into it. And, and so um, I view the skill of drafting as, of course, there's a skill. Of course, some teams draft better or worse than other teams. However, part of the skill of drafting is understanding that you don't know as much as you think you know. Because what I do think that the, the, the research side has really proven, and this is true whether you're into it from a statistical perspective or whether you're just a scout trying to be the best scout you can be, if you look at the history and you study these things, scouts do studies without doing analytics. They do plenty of studies. That's not anything new to them. If you look back at these sort of things, everybody misses more often than they think they're going to miss. It's completely intuitive to me to read uh, independent studies that say scouts don't know as well as they think they know because it's true. It, and and it, it hurts if you're a scout and you got to swallow the pride a little bit. And you got to realize, even when you've got a lot of a really strong feeling about somebody, that you just don't know as well as you think you know. Um, there's definitely a loser's curse in any any time you do pick somebody, and I think that has something to do with uh, with the way that these things kind of tend to play out. But um, yes, I think there's a skill, and I think that nobody, and not even myself included or anybody else, is really fully aware of how bad they are at it. So at a certain point, though, we, we're all evaluating these players. NFL teams are evaluating players, you know, scouts on, on Twitter. We're all evaluating players, and there are differences between these guys. Certain NFL players are better than other NFL players. Like, that's just, we, we right. know that to be true. Even regardless of if you gave two guys the exact same opportunity, the exact same rushes, targets, whatever, they would still perform differently because some guys are better than the other. So there does have to be skill in evaluating players correctly. And I do think that does get kind of lost in this debate of, you know, just trying to acquire more picks. There are certain traits. There are certain thresholds that guys meet in college that show that they are going to be better NFL players. Like, would you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. I don't think that there is um, an efficient market in the draft for, for getting all these players. And so I do think that there are opportunities, but I think part of the problem is also exactly that, that, that it, there's not really a realistic way to make this an efficient market. Um, it's kind of like when we analyze head coaches a lot of the time, these people are behaving so irrationally a lot of the time that it can be hard to really systematically put an analysis together that, um, 
that is that is built on an, an efficient market, which a lot of times you're assuming when you do, at least to some extent, that the market is efficient when you're doing any sort of these analyses. So, so like, yeah, no. So if you look at it and you split it by team, okay, we can't prove historically that any team has been better than anybody else. But if you look at every individual pick, of course, some picks are good and some picks are really bad, right? Um, right. Yeah, of course, some guys. And, and I think uh, an interesting point that I have heard raised is that maybe – NFL teams and even, you know, uh, independent talent evaluators are focusing on the wrong things. They're using the wrong criteria. They're holding prospects to the wrong thresholds, whether it be, you know, height, weight, size, or production thresholds. And there's other things to be looking at that, uh, that are not being analyzed currently. One of, the, one of the big things that the fantasy football community has found is that basically the younger a player has performed in college and the younger they come into the league, the better they are going to project. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, great example. I, I believe even now, I think he's only 22 years old and has two NFL seasons under his belt. So I think that's maybe one specific area where the NFL has not quite fully picked up on that market trend. That was part of the deal with the Amari Cooper trade is, is he's like the same age as Calvin Ridley. Um, like, like it's, it's shockingly close. They're, got, they're like one year apart, even though they came out um, three years apart from one another out of college. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're spot on. And this is something that's been found in other sports. And we can always look to other sports that have kind of been ahead of us, like baseball and basketball in terms of understanding these things. Younger players are always valued more. So, maybe we can't on an every player basis make these sort of blanket statements. Like you're not just because you draft somebody that's young doesn't mean they're going to be good. But I do think there are a lot of macro things that we can talk about. One of them being that younger players, that's, that's generally a better idea. Another one being if you draft for position scarcity, that's a little bit of a better idea. So, right. We're going to find running backs and wide receivers because throughout the history of football, the best player on the high school team gets put at running back. So we get lots of running backs. Also guys that are 5'10, 220 aren't that rare. Guys that are 6'6", 300, that can play offensive tackle, or guys yeah. that are 280 and can rush the passer, that are freak athletes, those guys are rare. So I, for me, I think um, drafting for that position scarcity, there are certain kind of rules that you can take into account. Like, we don't know as much as we think we know. Um, if we have the opportunity to trade down, we're going to do it more often than not, unless we feel really strongly about drafting a guy where we're at. Um, because just like sometimes you'll say, oh, wow, we can get, two third round picks just by trading down five spots here at the same time you might be looking at your draft board and say hey we're in the second round but we've got a guy that we had a top 10 grade on who's still available I mean that's probably unrealistic but you'll have players that don't always have whatever round you're in as their grade you might get to the fifth round and still have a player with a third round grade up there you don't want to trade down at that point you probably want to go and get that player even if we all know that we're you know we're probably a little bit wrong I think you just made one of the most interesting points about running back value that I've heard made. I, we actually have a, an episode of this podcast all about, you know, the diminishing value of running backs in the NFL coming out. And no one made the point that everyone makes about the NBA. You know, every NBA team has a good point guard just because there are so many guys in the world who are 5'10 and who can play basketball versus guys who are six foot nine and can play basketball. And, and I think the, the point that there are just, there are an infinite number of five, 10 guys who are athletic enough to be running backs. Like I I've never heard that point made before about football. And I think it's a, a really good point. So I'm, I'm assuming that you are more of the analytical mindset that teams should not spend first round draft picks on running backs or, or maybe not though, because you've spent some time in a front office and you see things from a slightly different perspective. 
So I don't have any rules about not taking running backs because to say that like running backs are not an important position is not something that I buy into. For example, Saquon Barkley. I think, you know, he's, you know, not to use the, uh, the exception that proves the rule, but Saquon's a great example of somebody who changes your football team. He makes your offensive line block better. He, he makes your quarterback better by helping you dictate what kind of coverages the defense is going to be in and understanding, okay, are they in man zone, being able to move him out there. There are things, and, and he's going to catch as many passes as your wide receivers are going to catch. So, you know, to say that a wide receiver still has value, but a running back doesn't have value, I, that part actually kind of confuses me at a certain point because, you know, what's the line on that one, I guess. But um, I think well, the, the, those the, the argument about the argument about Barkley is not that he's not a game-breaking player who couldn't change an offense. It's just that regardless of Barkley being on your team or not, you still need so many other things to go right for, right. for him to be – like, I, I still to this – like, I'd rather have the, you know, a safety or Denzel Ward or whatever, even after seeing how good Barkley was as a rookie because – Barkley was that good, and the Giants' offense was, I think, 15th in expected points added in his rookie season. Right. And, and there are just so many other things that have to go right. Like I, and I, I, what would your opinion be on, on the Giants? Like, who was the best tackle in last year's draft? I don't even know. No, I'm with you. I'm on record saying I, I would have taken Bradley Chubb there. So, yeah. and, and I still feel that way. Every, you know, hindsight 2020, I, listen, I think the good news is whoever they took at that spot, they were going to end up doing pretty well. Yeah, they were going to um, get you know, a good player. The top five picks, Darnold's the only question mark there right now, I think. Um, so that ended up being just a really nice top of the first round there. I think that Saquon Barkley obviously has value and makes the Giants' offense better. And value over replacement, I think that running backs need to prove more in order to justify the first-round pick. So I don't want to say that categorically I don't think we should draft running backs in the first round. I want to say that we should all – be turning the dial a little bit for what it takes for us to draft a running back or a wide receiver period. Because when we get to the seventh round and you said I made a good argument before, but the argument was made to me at the end of every year, when you look at your draft board and you peeled all the magnets off and you see what's left up there, there's going to be a lot of running backs and wide receivers every single year. That's yeah, the there, argument. There's a, there's a Philip Lindsay or an Arian Foster style runner every single year in the NFL. There will always be whoever your favorite under the radar draft prospect is. There's like a decent chance that guy ends up becoming a six round pick or an undrafted free agent. And some team can pay that dude pennies for two years, you know, let, and if he, and if he gets hurt, he's cut and the team has like no liability. And that's, that's really the big thing about running backs. Yeah, so you're building there. your team. You better get a, you better get a quarterback. You better get an offensive line. You better get a yeah. pass rush. You better get some corners. Then we can start talking about it. It's just a little bit more of a luxury position, but, I still think when you get a player like that, a player like Adrian Peterson, a player like Todd Gurley, uh, these guys matter. <laughs> I think that's a good – I mean, a good word for players like that is a luxury team. I don't think – I don't. a rebuilding team really shouldn't be focused on building the team from running back up. They should be, you know – like. and really, you just want to build all your passing game options first. You want cornerbacks, you want edge rushers, you want safeties, you want tackles. Is that, that's how I view things. I think that's. I think that the the analytics would definitely say that that passing is more important than running at this point. I think that a lot of nuance of that argument, but but I think that if you talk to forward thinking coaches, if you talk to guy that I worked for, Mike Lombardi, and the people that he worked for, like Bill Belichick, they would tell you right away they want people that can contribute on passing downs. Money is made on passing downs. That's why edge rushers get paid a lot of money, um, and because those are the big inflection points in football games. 
Yeah, and, and I just all good NFL teams are really focusing on and paying those positions and dedicating cap dollars to those, uh, you know, those positions. So in your experience, and this is fascinating to me, how is a pick actually made? What goes from the process of taking, you know, a GM has uh, his book, his rookie handbook of 400 guys at every position. We got quarterbacks, we got wide receivers, edge rushers, safeties. How does a, a player go from being a prospect playing at Ohio State to being a draft pick? Like, I, I really am very curious on that process. Yeah, so let's take it back and let's start in – um, in August, let's start August 1st. And let's say that's when you're having your meetings as a, as a scouting staff. That's when you first start, you say, what are we looking for? And not in terms of, Hey, we're looking for a quarterback this year. We're looking for a wide receiver this year. What are we looking for at every position for the players of our football team and really developing an understanding of what plays in the NFL right now, what wins in the NFL right now, and what you're looking for as you guys all set out, then you're dividing the country up and you're, you're checking players, you're cross checking players, all that kind of stuff. We're doing our reports. We get to the end of November and everybody's submitted at least one or two reports on every player that you're really interested in. And you use that to make what we call our December board. And that's when it really at first comes together. It's these initial reports. It's just getting the grades out. It's hearing the talk through on all the players, making sure everybody's understanding who these are, getting it in front of all the directors and your GM potentially. Um, and that's when it starts to come together. And when you picture the draft board, it's, it's, Really helpful if you picture the visual of like a team in their, in their war room with the magnets on the wall or the digital magnets as it might be now. But if you picture going across the room, you have every position. So quarterbacks, then running backs, then fullbacks, wide receivers, et cetera, going all the way through the defense and specialist positions. And then you have all your grade levels. So if you picture first round grades at the top, then below them the second round grades, third round grades. Now, some teams might grade round-based like that. In New Orleans, we certainly use round-by-round -round grading systems. In Cleveland, under Lombardi, we used um, a, a grading system where a 7-0 and above corresponded to this guy's going to be a Pro Bowl level player for us. A 6-7 to a 6-9 grade, 6.7 to 6.9 would be this guy's a high-level starter. You know, 6-5 to 6-6 is a situational starter. And we have different requirements for every position. One thing that's really interesting, this system that, that uh, Lombardi used, that the Patriots used, that a lot of the Patriots way teams around the NFL use right now, there are specific different grades for, say, a nose tackle who can play on three downs versus somebody who's only going to play on first and second down. That's really the difference in the grade there. And, and then is he going to be a starting level player? Is he going to be a backup level player at that position? Or is this guy a camp body filler or whatever? Um, and you start to fill out your grades like that. But if you have this sort of matrix across where you start to understand what every grade level is going to be for every position, and you're all on the same page about that, then fitting the players into where they go on kind of that big matrix is, is a pretty straightforward process. Now, you got to deal with cross-checks. So when we do December, we're all getting our initial reports. So usually every area scout will talk about somebody, and then there'll be a cross-check from one of the over-the-top guys, maybe a national scout, maybe the GM, maybe the director, whatever. You're going to go through all those meetings. You're going to take those opinions. You're going to put an initial grade. You've probably also done multiple more reports on, on kind of top 100 guides and whatever else it might be. You're going to go through all that. You're going to stack them the first time, and then you're going to go back and say, okay, everybody above this line, we're going to do cross-checks on. And then you're going to split everybody up. Instead of by the region, you know, I have the Northeast region, you're going to split them up and say, okay, Davis, you got the wide receivers this year, and John is going to have the offensive tackles, and, you know, Steve is going to have the defensive tackles, et cetera, et cetera. That yeah. way you can get a position stack. You get a position stack on each position. 
You do that. At the same time, you're doing all the all-star games. So bringing in more information, assigning more people to look at more different people, right? This time it's not, I saw all my guys that I followed around all fall at the East-West Shrine game. It's, I got sent to the Shrine game. Somebody else got sent to the NFLPA game and we had to watch the players that were there in front of us and learn everything that we could about them. So whoever was assigned to that game, we're going to divide and conquer. So all of these steps start happening. You get those all-star cross checks and then you have your February meetings. And the February board is my favorite board because that's when you've collected all the information. You've had the all-star games. You've had initial measurements on most of these guys. So you get a little bit um, more certain about, okay, this guy's uh, not a five foot eight corner or something. You know, we weren't sure if he was five, eight or, or five, 10, you know, that can be a difference in certain situations or you, you find out somebody's got short arms that you didn't really realize on film. You want to go back and take another look. How come I didn't notice that the first time? Is this something that's going to affect him in the future? Has he figured out how to overcome it? You want to answer those sort of questions. But then in February, you have your meetings, your pre-combine meetings with all the cross-checks incorporated. You've got multiple uh, looks at every player. This is when I think you should really, this is my favorite board. And this is what the SIS football rookie handbook is too, kind of while we're at it. It is the February board. It is pre-combine, but based on everything that's happened on the field, who's got, what are the scouting reports look like? And what are the on-field analytics before we cloud it with all this nonsense and all the people following Mel Kuyper and, and draft coverage. I was going to say uh, Mayock, but I guess not him anymore. Not him anymore. Um, yeah. This is going to be a different week we have this week, huh? Yeah. Um, so anyway, you're going through all that. You get to February, then the combine comes and the combine is going to introduce players that surprise you they perform better or worse than you expected it's going to introduce medical evaluations your doctors are going to poke and prod every single one of these guys and every other team's doctors are going to do the same thing and then they're all going to talk to each other secretly about it um, so you're going to get a lot of opinions about all these different players and, and their medical that's going to get added into your board and the coaches are going to get involved now at the combine the coaches are seeing most of these guys first time second time you know maybe they saw them for the first time at the senior bowl and then they watch some film, and now they're seeing them up at close in person. So maybe they've developed some opinions that they're trying to go further on. Maybe they haven't developed opinions yet, and they show up there, and they see a guy that they, you know, they, they used to coach with at Ohio University, and he tells them, oh, you got to look out for my guy. And then all of a sudden, they develop an opinion on that guy just based on what their friend said. So you get all these different opinions that will come in. Then you'll go through another round of meetings after the pro day circuit happens in March. You'll have your final meetings in April. And then you got to get stuff past ownership. Um, so once you develop the consensus, hopefully with your scouting department, then add in all the coaches, then add in all the medical people. Sometimes, depending on uh, what it is, what the situation is, the owners will want to be involved, especially with the first round picks, especially with character or injury risk picks. Um, and then, you know, in New Orleans, we had a very open draft room with all of the real scouting department was in there and all the coaches were right next door in case we needed to talk to them about anybody. In, uh, in Cleveland, it was a very, very um, separated situation where kind of the scouts were in their own place. Nobody talked to us, and we found out about uh, terrible picks that, you know, kind of after the fact that they happened, like, wow, how did that happen? Oh, the owner got involved. How did that happen? Oh, the head coach got involved. Yeah, you, have, you, you want to say anything about Haslam after that crazy ESPN piece that came out? Do you think it is as dramatic as that piece uh, demonstrated? I thought the piece was pretty uh, was pretty good. I thought it was uh, about uh, about what's right on that one. You know, I don't know I don't know the guy personally very well. You know, I've met him a few times, shook his hand and stuff like that. 
Um, I know that what happened in that draft when I was there was absolutely terrible and a ridiculous thing to happen with a team. I know what everybody else knows about the federal lawsuit and however that went down. Um, and we can all, I guess, make our own judgments there. But uh, at the end of the day, it seems like they're starting to right the ship in terms of what they're doing. Um, it seems like Dorsey has things under control there. It seems like they are still using a lot of analytics. They are still um, keeping a lot of things, doing a lot of things intelligently there, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm just keeping my eyes open. I thought they made a really good decision on the head coach. So I'm, oh, we'll see, yeah, we'll see how things coaching continue staff. to go forward. Yeah, their coaching staff is incredible. Those are those are like two guys who are just born to call plays together. I'm I'm super excited to watch Cleveland's offense next year. So I I I wonder if they will take a wide receiver. I really hope they do. That'd be interesting. You know, it's not in my uh, it's not in my philosophical wheelhouse to say take a wide receiver early. And I also don't love the wide receiver class this year. But I'm with you. I think that um, depth wise, I think there are a lot of players in this class that I think could really help them. That's that's interesting. You say that it's not in your philosophical wheelhouse to take a wide receiver early. I I would be the opposite of that. If I was picking in in the back half of the first round and my second wide receiver was like maybe Brashad Perryman, I, I would probably be looking to take one of these guys, uh, you know, in Keel Harry or Marquise Brown or whoever. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned definitely two interesting players there. Uh, Nikhil Harry's our top rated guy and I'm a big Marquise Brown fan I think he's got a lot of playmaking ability people are going to poke holes in him he's got little hands stuff like that Um, but uh, at some point you can't teach that kind of explosiveness yeah. Uh, so look, now, finally, I want to get to, uh, you know, the, the real reason I wanted to have you on. I want to talk about the handbook. I, I first want to talk about the methodology and then uh, let's get into some specific players. The handbook is really high on or, or rather low on. Yeah. So the, the thought behind the rookie handbook is basically we wanted to break down all the top players. We wrote up over 400 players, but the book ends up including about 250 scouting reports on, on the top guys, in our opinion, there. And what we have for every player is you'll have side-by-side, both pages. On the left side, you'll see a scouting report for every player. It'll break down who the player is overall, what they do in the run game, in the pass game, and any overall notes on them. These are scouting reports that are written the same way that I learned from two NFL teams. I've taken kind of the best of both concepts, tried to marry them together. And with our scouting department, we have something called Scout School that we start Every year in September, we get together with the scouts every week and we talk about different position groups. What do we scout in the different positions? What are the critical factors that we look at? Um, what are some examples historically of guys that, that we've learned something from one way or another where we can get better at scouts? Who are the guys we watch guys this year and try to make sure we're on the same page? We understand what's playing in the NFL at this position, what's winning at the NFL, what do we need to look for to make our team better, and then actually watch players together to make sure we're understanding that when I say this player has six hands, that means good hands, a six on the one through nine scale grading. That's, that's something that should mean something to everybody in our scouting department where we're all on the same page, what six hand looks like versus seven or five hands. So that's one side of what's going on is the whole scouting process. And just like we talked about with NFL teams a minute ago, that's how we do that side of the book. We, we divide up the players. Everybody did their initial reports. We looked at the top grades. We did cross checks on those players. And we iterated the process until we felt good about our stacks at every position. And that's what you see going into the book. Then on the right side of every page, you get a little bit of the sports info solution special sauce. And what this is, is we started tracking college football three years ago. So we've got three years of 
advanced stats, stuff that's really only seen the light of day with NFL teams so far in terms of them using it in, for their scouting purposes and things like that. This is that same stuff that the teams are getting, a lot of the same statistics that they're using. It's not all this stuff. Obviously, we've got to keep some of the, the really high-level stuff kind of behind the curtain. But um, historically, right. the way we do this in baseball is you're about – it's like GPS in the military. You're about three years behind whatever we're using, you know, live on the field right now. And then we're putting that out into the public once, once the league is on to the next thing that's creating a competitive advantage. Um, so we have great statistics that are on all these guys from things that you'd expect, like your yards per route run for receivers and stats like that, to brand new statistics, some things that you've seen on the data hub before, some things that are, that are completely new, um, play level stats, blocking stats, um, scheme dependent stats, um, all that kind of stuff, the different pro indicators that we look for at each position. And what we've done for you is we've said, here's our scouting report based on what we've done as a staff. Here's our analytics report based on what we've done as a staff. You're the GM. You make of it what you will. And sometimes you'll even find that the scouting report and the analytics don't even match. And that's by design because when it doesn't match, you'll always hear me say, well, there's consistent, there's good picks. There's one thing I learned in New Orleans when we had consensus, when we made good picks. There's one thing I learned in Cleveland, we didn't have consensus. So um, the consensus, not just between scouts, but also between the scouts and the analytics, we wanted to present that. We wanted to present kind of the raw information to you and let you use all of those tools to develop whatever insights you would want. Sounds, uh, it sounds very interesting. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to dig into it, but I, I of course, we got we to gotta find something to argue about. We got to find something to give, to give some takes on. So who are some players that, uh, that the handbook is rather high on that consensus does not seem to be that high on? So our top guy, I'll start there is Quinnen Williams. Um, I wrote the report on Nick Bosa. I love Nick Bosa. Great player. He reminds me of his brother in a lot of ways. I think he's going to be a very good NFL player. But Quinnen Williams is a player that we saw traits that, that, that are downright rare on the film with this guy. The way he gets off the ball, the physicality that he plays with, just the explosiveness is really something else. And he can dominate in whatever scheme you'd want to put him in. He can one gap. He can two gap. He can play four, three, three, four. This is a guy that we saw special talent there. And he's, he's our number one guy uh, pretty easily. And I don't think that's a, an opinion that you're seeing in a ton of other places now. I think you'll hear more and more about no, it. No, that's, a, that's, a that's a very unique take. And, and I think it's based a lot on people just, they, NFL people are just so concentrated on the edge rushers as opposed to the interior linemen. But I actually think that if, Quinn and Williams is able to give 90% of the impact on the interior that Bosa is able to do on the edge. I actually think that's such a valuable tool. We saw that with the Rams this year. All of their pass rush came from the interior. And when when Sue and uh, when Sue and Donald were firing, I, I mean quarterbacks right. had nowhere to go. They they couldn't do anything because they there was no pocket. And the ability to erase a pocket is better than the ability to collapse a pocket, I think. I'm with you. I think that's modern NFL. I think you're, you're onto something that a lot of people haven't caught onto yet. And that's that interior pressure is a lot harder to deal with. 
And it's just, it's harder to generate because the best athletes play edge rusher, right? It's, it's uh, the, the edge rushers get paid. I mean, we've, we've seen this in every sport. The best athletes end up transitioning to the positions where the most money is able to be made and where their skills are, are more unique. And so I think the, the idea that like, I mean, Quinn, like how much better is he than the second best defensive tackle in this class? I can't say I've scouted a ton of defensive tackles for this class yet. Well, let's talk about Ed Oliver then. <laughs> yeah, all, you <laughs> because, know what? I mean, okay, I have watched. I have watched <laughs> Oliver, and he's pretty good. He's pretty good. Because that's another guy that I'm really excited about. I know there are a lot of questions about his weight right now, but this is a guy who is a freak in the way that he gets off the ball. The first step. The only player that I've ever scouted that he reminds me of with his first step like this is Aaron Donald, and I, I hesitate to put anybody in the same sentence as Aaron Donald because he's such a ridiculous freak of an NFL player whose career has gone above and beyond I think what anybody could have imagined for him um, but Ed Oliver has a little bit of that um, just that first step explosion and quickness I think he's going to run really fast in a 40-yard dash just like um, we saw um, a few years ago with Aaron Donald and he's a weird guy because he played mostly in a zero technique kind of slanting out of a zero technique um, in their scheme there they did a lot of weird stuff with him this is a pure under tackle so Quinny Williams, I think we can line him up wherever we want. Nose, D-tackle, three technique, whatever we want there. I think that specifically we've got to get into a scheme where we're in an under front where we're getting Ed Oliver as a three technique and he's isolated one-on-one on an offensive guard because he's in a gap. He's just in a gap all day long. And uh, I think he's going to be a lot to handle too. Um, who would you rather have, Aaron Donald or Khalil Mack? Oh, I'd rather have Aaron Donald. I would definitely rather have I Aaron that Donald that than Khalil be- Mack. That should be obvious at this point, right? I mean, if we look at Aaron Donald compared to the second best defensive tackle, and then we look at Khalil Mack, and there's an argument about is he even the best edge rusher? I mean, it's it's. I think that that um, to what you were saying about interior versus exterior, sure, you get great athletes going out there, but I think teams are waking up to where the impact can happen on the inside. Yeah, I mean, the uh, this is actually a crazy stat. The Rams, uh, they're the most quarterback hits that anyone who played linebacker or end for them got was six hits, six quarterback hits. And then Donald had like 45 and Sue had like 20, which is like that. That's just unheard of. And I think any I think obviously the NFL copycat league, I think teams are going to look at that defensive system that was able to give some of the best quarterbacks in the league problems. I think that that system will be or at least that style of pass rushing will be copied this season. Right. Um, You asked about other guys that were really high on. Nick Needham is a corner out of UTEP that I don't think has been on a lot of people's radars. He certainly wasn't on our radar until very late in the process. But when you talk about guys that we kind of under the radar sleeper picks for us, he's a guy that we think could be a starting level NFL corner. And he's not even invited to the combine. So we won't find out how well he runs or how big he actually is this week. We'll have to wait until the scouts travel to El Paso for his pro day. But Nick Needham is a name to look out for in terms of under-the-radar corners that haven't been on a lot of other people's boards. I, I'm, I have not uh, watched a ton of the corners for this class yet. I probably will after the combine, and I'll, I'll just watch the guys who end up getting, like, the crazy spark scores. Like, my, my favorite defensive player in the NFL is Byron Jones, the Cowboys corner, just because I love, I love guys like that who are just so physically overwhelming to the opposing wide receivers. Do you think that Needham will, will test that way? Do you think he'll be, like, a crazy athlete? He's not a physically overwhelming guy. That's, that's not the type of prospect um, we're talking about here. He's more fleet-footed. But uh, okay. Byron Jones, it's interesting you bring him up because uh, 
I was never a huge Byron Jones guy, and he had a really heck of a good season this year, moving a corner for the Cowboys and really yeah. kind of fitting in that in that Seahawks-style cover three Mabel thing that they do. And um, it's just so interesting to see a guy that for a little while was positionless, but everybody knew about the athleticism. Um, talking to those guys, I was down at the College Gridiron Showcase, one of the all-star games in January, talking to a couple guys with the Cowboys, and they were talking about the transition he made and how comfortable he is in this role and how they really found like they, they found a spot for him. Only problem is they did it in a contract year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's going to get he's going to get super paid. Uh, the skill position, guys, is there a wide receiver that you think the handbook is on higher than consensus? So I think that we were pretty cool on most of the wide receivers. There are some guys that are interesting, but um, there are also issues that some of the different guys have. You mentioned Andy Isabella before. He's kind of a, a little bit. Uh, we thought he was going to be more of an under radar guy. And all of a sudden, everybody found him at the senior bowl. Um, popping up all over the place um, overall with the wide receivers and with the quarterbacks just not not a really exciting class um, really not a lot of players like last year we got excited about players at these two positions and this year um, you don't see it we have Haskins and Murray basically neck and neck at the top of the quarterback rankings um, personally I'd rather have Murray than Haskins I think Haskins has the edge in our final grade just by a little bit um, but to be honest with you um, we started looking, I watched Will Greer. I wrote the report on Will Greer. I was excited about his arm talent a little bit. I thought there was something there, but I didn't see somebody with the decision-making processing leadership abilities. Um, you know, I'm a Duke alum. So I watched a lot of Daniel Jones Same thing. He looks, he looks the part on the hoof, but, but the accuracy and uh, no, no thanks for Daniel Jones for me. He's going to be like, he's going to be like my seventh or eighth quarterback when I finally get everything all set up together. I, the, the only guy I see who I think could be a starter outside of uh, Haskins, Murray Locke is I think, I think Gardner could start for, you know, a, a six win NFL team or whatever. Like, I don't think he's like elite or anything, but I, I see him like long-term like Brian Hoyer. He's interesting. Um, definitely a really interesting background on him, the way he's yeah, kind of been all over the place. Story. Um, and our, our scout, Nate Cooper, who's one of our top scouts, um, I'm almost certain he's going to get snatched up by an NFL team this year. Um, he wrote up Gardner. He liked certain things about him. He actually compared him to Baker Mayfield. He wasn't saying that this guy's as good as Baker Mayfield. No, they, they look some... the same. Like when they're throwing, they look the same. Yeah, I think you're picking up on something there that he saw, and, and I think that, that that's accurate. That's fair. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't too hot on him. There were some things that I didn't love about his game. There are some things where you see the inflated statistics that, that guys that come out of these systems, and I, I have some concerns about that with him. Um, but I do agree with you to some extent. I, he's a guy I'd be interested in taking a shot on late. Um, I, don't, I don't think that there's that – there's because I think he'll be around also. One of my one of my longer term theories is that teams that are like committed to passing the ball as their primary mode of moving the ball, you know, Saints, Chiefs, Patriots, whatever, like these teams that, uh, you know, have long standing quarterbacks, whoever the Washington State quarterback is that comes out every year, if he's a sixth round draft pick, one of those teams should just always take that guy, just because I think there's always a chance that. The, they've had so many reps, you know, and, and these guys like Luke Falk in his college career through like 2000 passes or something crazy. And I think there's just a chance that one of those guys ends up being like a, a real hidden gem. And it, it wasn't Falk. It wasn't Connor holiday. And this is a, another crazy stat. The next uh, Mike Leach college quarterback to start an NFL game will be the first 
he, he's never had one of his college quarterbacks wow. start an NFL game. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's wild. That's why, I mean, obviously, to some extent, he's had people in his tree, in his coaching tree, that have had guys in the NFL. And some of them yeah. are starting to have success now. But, yeah, never, never him himself. Um, that's interesting. See, I thought you were going to go somewhere different. I thought you were going to go and say um, when Boise State had uh, – what's his name? was now the quarterback coach for the Cowboys. Kellen um, Moore. Kellen Moore. I thought you were going with that. Like, draft one of these guys because they'll be able to know the system, understand where passing offenses are going philosophically, and be a good voice in the room even if they can't throw. <laughs> the NFL no, I, I think I think the same thing. Like I think like Ripian, whoever, like I like guys who who are winners and are able to. And, and I guess another big thing is guys who are like a little mobile, like guys who can move around in the pocket a little bit. You know, gain three hundred rushing yards a year or whatever. Those are just guys I would like to have on my roster, as opposed to like the the Sean Mannion, uh, you know, the the six four guy who can't move and who can only throw right. in the pocket super clean. Like I, I just don't have any you know interest in Will. Greer in my uh you know when I was in the league I was around Chase Daniel for a while I was around uh Brian Hoyer for a while they're definitely guys that you can poke holes in their game but they really fit the mold of what you're talking about and they certainly made us better by what's above their ears in the meeting room above the shoulders in the meeting room every day between the years I should say yeah, I, I, I'm very on board with that. Uh, does, the, does the handbook like Marquise Brown? I think he is a – he's like a, a bit – him and DK Metcalf, there's just going to be a lot of disagreement about them. Brown because he's hurt and because he's, he's quite small, and Metcalf because he played like, you know, 15 total college games or something. Yeah, we've got Metcalf just a hair ahead of Brown. Um, they're both kind of right in the same range. We have a 6.8 grade on Metcalf, I think which is like a solid starter grade, somewhere between your number one, number two wide receiver, um, depending on kind of what your makeup is in the group. He's all physical, though. Um, for me, yeah. a lot of the on-field analytics are really rough on him. Not a lot of on-field production. Um, but, I mean, if you see the pictures of the guy, the guy's an absolute freak. Um, he looks like, like Antoine, Antoine Bolden, like on more steroids somehow, um, or something like that. Um, he he definitely looks the part and you see physical tools that get you really excited about what he could do. I'd be more of a Hollywood Brown guy. We have Hollywood Brown at the six, seven grade, 6.7 would be uh, basically like a number two receiver, a, a solid starter level grade, but not quite uh, being the number one guy area. Um, I don't think you'd want to really design an offense where you're relying on him for a lot of things, but if you can fit him in, in a role like a Tyreek Hill, where he's taking the top off the defense, and being dialed up for explosive things and stuff like that, I, I think that I think that that's um, the role there where he can be somebody. I just don't think you can teach playmaking ability like he has, and he's shown the ability with two different quarterbacks. They both seem to be excellent quarterbacks, but he's shown the ability to be thirty uh, percent of the of the best offense in the country each of the last two years. Um, that's somebody that I'm interested in, even if he's going to drop a couple balls because his hands aren't exactly what you'd like to see. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I'm I'm going to be big on Brown. The last guy I wanted to get your opinion on, and I just watched him this morning, is Paris Campbell from Ohio State. Another another crazy stat. He is Urban Meyer's first 1,000 yard wide receiver 
since 2004 when he was at Utah. You know, not Percy Harvin, not Deontay Thompson, not Aaron Hernandez. None of these guys got to 1,000 receiving yards, but Campbell did. And he did it all on screens and on go routes, which is normally a ding against a prospect, right? You want to see them do more things. But I think that he has a super specific role that NFL teams are like already using, you know, the, the jet motion, um, you know, the, the screens, like, I think he has a, a really useful role for an NFL team kind of like right away. You know, you talk about the uses and the role, and that's such an important part about the way that, that I think you really need to think about when you're drafting, what's this guy going to do for your team. When we talk about Andy Isabella, you're talking about a slot guy there who kind of looks like a lot of typical slot guys, but he's actually a vertical threat. He's somebody that's going to stretch the field vertically out of the slot. And that's a super, you know, modern NFL offense thing. You know, imagine that fitting in the Rams and the Patriots system, what they're doing there. You're, you get excited about that. I think you're right on here. Where in the past we would have said this guy has no route tree. Um, he's only running – he's only doing two things. He's, he's a one-trick pony. I think to your point, there's a value for those sorts of skills. Now, he's got to show that, that he can get behind the defense on the NFL level uh, because certainly that's the more important skill. But then all the Tavon Austin stuff, um, that's interesting too, and that fits into your offense, um, the ability to get the bubbles and get yards after the catch and run the, the stuff, uh, the jet sweeps and things of that nature. So I think both of them are interesting there. There's one stat that you will find in the SIS football rookie handbook that we actually uh, we look at the route diversity of receivers. So we chart over 35 different routes that, that receivers can run in college football, and what we do is we count any time a receiver ran a route more than five times over the course of their season, different of their senior season, we count that as a different route run, or that's part of their route tree. And you'll see some guys in the book that have three, four routes in their route trees, and you'll see some guys where it gets up to eight, nine routes in their route trees. And I think that really tells you something different about what you're looking at. That's an example of one of these stats that you can find in the SIS football rookie handbook. Make of it what you will. Um, but definitely tells you something interesting about how the person plays, not just how many yards they got. All right. Well, there we go. I think that uh, there's a very good discussion about taking the temperature in the NFL right now. Uh, why don't you tell people uh, about SIS, where to get the handbook, and uh, how to engage with your work? Yeah. So first and foremost, SIS, we are on Twitter at, at sportsinfo underscore SIS. And then you can find me personally at Matt Mano, M-A-T-T-M-A-N-O. There's all kinds of football and baseball stats being posted all the time. All of our interesting research, we try to get as much of it out, out as we can on Twitter as possible. So that's a great place to, to kind of start with us checking us out. And then the Football Rookie Handbook. This is the first version of the Football Rookie Handbook. We've been publishing the Bill James Handbook on baseball for years and years and years. This is our first shot at this. Um, I described it a little bit earlier. I think it's super interesting the way that we put it together. Um, having all of the scouting and the analytics, you can get it on actasports.com, A-C-T-A sports.com, or you can go to a website called amazon.com and you can search for it there. Um, it is shipping. Um, it should deliver on whatever your prime delivery schedule is. Um, and if you happen to be an NFL team listening right now, make sure you catch up with me at the combine because that's, that's when you really want to get my attention. Um, there we, we can go. have some different conversations. Um, yeah, I think that's everything that I need to plug today. Check us out. Oh, and also the sports, the sports info solutions blog at sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. Also a great place to check us out. And of course the off the charts football podcast, where I will have to have you join us soon.
Hey, whenever you want. I am ready. I'm making my way through the rookie class right now, watching everyone, running everyone uh, through, you know, a couple different models. Uh, really excited to get the combine numbers, actually. I know it's kind of not it's kind of not in vogue to admit that that's a big part of your process these days, but I love the combine numbers. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. Big fan of uh, all the stuff going on at SIS. Make sure to follow Matt on Twitter. Check out his podcast and give a look to the rookie handbook.